taxes and put money in the bank besides. Planters in the South, meanwhile, were borrowing money to support the Negroes in idleness at home, while they themselves were fighting at the front. Old Colonel Chestnut, the author's father-in-law, in April 1862, estimated that he had already lost half a million in bank stock and railroad bonds. When the war closed, he had borrowed such large sums himself, and had such large sums due to him from others, that he saw no likelihood of the obligations on either side ever being discharged. Mrs. Chestnut wrote her diary from day to day, as the mood or an occasion prompted her to do so. The fortunes of war changed the place of her abode almost as frequently as the seasons changed, but wherever she might be, the diary was continued. She began to write in Charleston when the convention was passing the Ordinance of Secession. Thence she went to Montgomery, Alabama, where the Confederacy was organized, and Jefferson Davis was inaugurated as its president. She went to receptions where, sitting aside on sofas with Davis, Stevens, Toombs, Cobb, or Hunter, she talked of the probable outcome of the war, should war come, setting down in her diary what she heard from others and all that she thought herself. Returning to Charleston, where her husband, in a small boat, conveyed to Major Anderson the ultimatum of the governor of South Carolina, she saw from a housetop the first act of war committed in the bombardment of Fort Sumter. During the ensuing four years, Mrs. Chestnut's time was mainly passed between Columbia and Richmond. For shorter periods, she was at the Falkir White Sulphur Springs in Virginia, Flat Rock in North Carolina, Portland in Alabama, the home of her mother, Camden and Chester in South Carolina, and Lincolnton in North Carolina. In all these places, Mrs. Chestnut was in close touch with men and women who were in the forefront of the social, military, and political life of the South. Those who live in her pages make up, indeed, a catalogue of the heroes of the Confederacy. President Jefferson Davis, Vice President Alexander H. Stevens, General Robert E. Lee, General Stonewall Jackson, General Joseph E. Johnston, General Pierre G. T. Beauregard, General Wade Hampton, General Joseph B. Kershaw, General John B. Hood, General John S. Preston, General Robert Toombs, R. M. T. Hunter, Judge Louis T. Wigfall, and so many others that one almost hears the roll call. That this statement is not exaggerated may be judged from a glance at the index, which has been prepared with a view to the inclusion of all important names mentioned in the text. As her diary constantly shows, Mrs. Chestnut was a woman of society in the best sense. She had love of companionship, native wit, an acute mind, knowledge of books, and a searching insight into the motives of men and women. She was also a notable housewife, much given to hospitality, and her heart was of the warmest and tenderest, as those who knew her well bore witness. Mary Boykin Miller, born March 31, 1823, was the daughter of Stephen Decatur Miller, a man of distinction in the public affairs of South Carolina. Mr. Miller was elected to Congress in 1817, became governor in 1828, and was chosen United States Senator in 1830. He was a strong supporter of the nullification movement. In 1833, owing to ill health, he resigned his seat in the Senate, and not long afterward removed to Mississippi, where he engaged in cotton planting until his death in March 1838. 
His daughter, Mary, was married to James Chestnut, Jr., April 23, 1840, when seventeen years of age. Thenceforth, her home was mainly at Mulberry, near Camden, one of several plantations owned by her father-in-law. Of the domestic life at Mulberry, a pleasing picture has come down to us, as preserved in a time-worn scrapbook and written some years before the war. In our drive of about three miles to Mulberry, we were struck with the wealth of forest trees along our way, for which the environs of Camden are noted. Here is a bridge completely canopied with overarching branches, and for the remainder of our journey we pass through an aromatic avenue of crab trees, with the yellow jessamine and the Cherokee rose entwining every shrub, post, and pillar within reach, and lending an almost tropical luxuriance and sweetness to the way. But here is the house a brick building, capacious and massive, a house that is a home for a large family.